Well, friends, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this reality, but I'll remind you of it anyway. Truth is under attack in our world. According to a recent survey, 58% of American adults reject any absolute boundaries regarding their morality, believing instead that moral truth is up to the individual to decide. 58%. That same study also found that if you, if you narrow the, the, the survey pool to younger Americans, those under the age of 30, 30% of younger Americans believe, do not believe or only 30% believe that God is the basis of truth. That means 70% do not. In a separate study, the Pew Research Center stated the question in another way. Do you believe in absolute standards for right and wrong? 33% said, yes, there are clear standards for what is right and wrong. While 64% of those surveyed said right or wrong depends on the situation. And if we zoom in a bit and look only at evangelical Protestants, that's most of us in here. This is an evangelical Protestant church. Some of you didn't know that. Well, it is. Uh, That's the group we kind of belong to. Only 50% of evangelical Protestants say there are clear standards for what's right and wrong. 48% say right and wrong is situational. Dr. George Barna, director of research at the Cultural Research Center, says it this way. Belief in absolute moral truth rooted in God's word is rapidly eroding among all American adults, whether churched or unchurched, within every political segment and within every age group, even among those who identify God as the source of truth, there is substantial rejection of any absolute standard of morality in American culture. We are rapidly becoming a culture of my truth and Your truth, perhaps like me, you've heard these phrases uttered more and more often. But the problem doesn't end there. One scholar I read this week says, we are living in a generation-wide crisis of deconstruction. All around us, people are being swept away by the ideas and ideologies of our time. Deconstruction is happening in the church. Now, the first thing that must be said about deconstruction is that there is a good type of deconstruction. The kind of deconstruction that we see in Jesus. The kind of deconstruction we see in the Hebrew prophets. The kind of deconstruction we see in the church reformers. This kind of deconstruction digs deeply into scripture and, and causes us to rethink our understandings and it critiques the world's influence on our beliefs and practices as the people of God in the world. That's good deconstruction. Deconstruction we should be doing all the time. But then there's another kind of deconstruction. The kind that's prevalent in our world today. The kind that uses the philosophies and ideologies of the world to critique scripture's authority in the church. This deconstruction strips away foundational truths of the faith and leaves us, as Paul says to Timothy, with a form of godliness that has no power. So friends, this morning, if you hadn't guessed already, I want to talk about truth. But I can't talk about truth without talking about what truth demands, and I can't talk about what truth demands without talking about what the results will be. And so our questions today, what is truth, what does truth demand, and what will the result be? 
I've titled my message today, Jesus Cares About Obedience to the Truth in a Time of Moral Relativism. In a time when people are defining and redefining truth for themselves, Jesus cares. He cares about what we believe. He cares about what we choose to give our allegiance to. He cares about what we use in our lives to define what is right and what is wrong. Listen to these words from John chapter 8. These are Jesus' words. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's dive in. What is, what is truth? This is actually not a new question. Sometimes we think it's, it's this world we live in is asking this question. But actually, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood on trial for his life before a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, who was a ruler um, in the Roman Empire. And when Pilate asked Jesus who he is, Jesus responds in this way. He says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then here's Pilate's response. Some of you remember. What is truth? What is truth? You see, perhaps Pilate was ahead of his time, or maybe there has always been this idea in the world that truth is relative, subjective, determined moment by moment from one individual to the next. I said at the beginning of this message that truth is under attack. The postmodern worldview, and for those of you who don't know, we live in a postmodern world. Modernity has kind of given way to post modernity, postmodern thinking, and postmodernism says that there is no absolute truth, just different narratives. Postmodernism says the myth of the meta-narrative, the story that kind of is for all of us, is over. There are just different stories now that help different groups make sense of the world, but none of those stories are superior to the others. That's post-modernity. Friends, this is increasingly the perspective of our world, specifically about the Bible and about Jesus. It's a good, this is a classic Portland perspective. Ready for it? It's a good story for you, and I'm okay if you believe it, but just don't try to tell me that it's true for me. You have your truth, and I have my truth. But friends, historic Christianity says there is such a thing as truth, absolute truth, a meta-narrative about a triune God, the creator who came to earth in the form of Jesus to redeem the world after its corruption at the hands of humanity. The word for this is orthodoxy. Ortho meaning right in Greek and doxa meaning belief. And yes, followers of Jesus disagree on all sorts of secondary issues. And scripture is very clear about some things and not so clear about others. But orthodoxy says there is a body of truth, beliefs, ethics, ideas, practices that have been passed down from the life and teachings of Jesus and the writers of Scripture for thousands and thousands of years. Friends, we are an orthodox church. I love how John Mark Comer talks about this. His words so resonate with my heart and the heart of our leadership, and I, and I hope your heart as well. Listen, listen to how he describes an orthodox church. 
We love Jesus. We trust his wisdom and intelligence and goodness. We find his life and teachings to be the most compelling and true vision of life on offer. We love prayer. We love to experience Jesus' presence and peace by the Spirit. We love Scripture. We ache not just to read and understand it, but to live it out. And while we are quick to apologize for all the ways that we do not measure up to Jesus' example, we do not apologize for our love of Jesus and our allegiance to him. And not just as a smart rabbi or social activist, but as the Lord of all creation. The Christ King whom God raised from the dead and set at his right hand to rule over the universe who one day will return to put the world to rights, to judge the righteous and the wicked and to reign forever. Jesus comes to testify to the truth, but not just that. Scripture tells us that Jesus came not just to teach about the truth, but to be the truth. To be the truth. Friends, this is the big difference between Jesus and every other religious leader in the history of the world. A lot of religious leaders teach truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. He came to show us the truth. John chapter 1 verse 14 says the word, and the, the word there for word is logos. It's a term about the defining reality of existence. The logos was the thing that gives logic and meaning and understanding and purpose to the world. It says the logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, this concept for us that Jesus is Truth is hard for us as Western thinkers. It's hard for us to kind of wrap our brains around because the Jews were Eastern people. They were, they were Eastern thinkers. They wrote the Bible from an Eastern thinking perspective. And as Americans, as Western thinkers, truth for us is very logical. It's rational. It's scientific, especially in a church like ours with Intel right around the corner, right? Truth is, is, is not personal, it's impersonal, it's objective. Truth is a set of statements or equations. Four plus four equals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not complicated. Not a trick question. The state we reside in is called? The color of these shoes is? Black. Pastor Dave's sermons are really? Interesting was the word I was looking for there. The judges would have also taken great or wonderful. Uh, But these are, aside from that last one, these are kind of Western truth statements. They're factual, they're logical. But for the Jews, truth was less about logic and more about meaning and experience. It was about purpose and significance. It, It was about ultimate reality and the right way to live. For Eastern thinkers... Truth doesn't unfold in the brain as much as it unfolds in life. That's why God for the Jews is ultimate truth. It's not simply that God, that everything God says is true. Truth is who God is. It's what you experience as you get to know God. This is why in our verse today, Jesus says, you will 
know the truth. The Greek word know is the word ginosko, and it's not a Western word about, about mental understanding. It's not cognitively grasping something. Ginosko describes the, the process of experientially getting to know someone. It's personal, intimate knowledge. It describes the relationship between a husband and a wife. I don't just know about Amy. I deeply understand her, how she thinks, how she feels, how she acts, how she lives, her character, her integrity. And so Jesus says, I'm not just looking for you to understand the truth. I'm looking for you to have personal, intimate knowledge of the truth. And he's talking about himself. He's saying the truth is me. I'm showing you how to understand reality and the right way to live. I'm showing you how to experience meaning and purpose and significance in this world. Check this out. This is John chapter 14. You've heard these words before. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, gnoskoed me, you would know my Father as well. If you knew me, you'd know the way. The word is hadas. It's the journey, the road. It's a course of conduct. Jesus is saying, follow me as the way to live your life. He's talking about obedience here. He says, if you knew me, you'd, knew, you'd know the truth. The word is aletheia. It's reality. It's what life is really all about. You'd know what life was really all about. He says, if you knew me, you'd experienced the life. And there's a couple different words for life in Greek. The one he chooses here is significant. He chooses zoe. Zoe is about vitality in life. It's about full life and abundant life, the life that God wants you for you to have. But let's take it down one more layer. Because the rabbis in Jesus' day would, would talk about the Old Testament. They would talk about the Torah. They'd talk about the law of Moses. And they were obsessed with it. They were obsessed with the law. They loved the law. They adored the law. Why were they so obsessed with the law? When you read the Old Testament, you see this. They were obsessed with the law because it was their connection to God. It defined reality for them. It defined a life of meaning and purpose and value and significance. That was the law. And so they called it what? They called it the law of liberty. They called it the law that brought perfect freedom and here's how they referred to it they called it the way the truth and the life and so when Jesus comes and says I am the way and the truth and the life he's telling them that the law they believe connects them to God the law they believe brings perfect freedom the law they believe defines reality and ultimate truth Jesus says it's all wrapped up in me I am the embodiment of what it means to live it out Friends, this is our belief as Christians, that Jesus is the meta-narrative, that he is the one who makes sense of life and reality and existence, that he is the one who defines who you are and how you were designed to live. Jesus is the truth. And so question two, what does truth demand? This one, this one is very simple. Truth demands obedience. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way to live. 
He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. He's calling for obedience here, friends. You see, one of the reasons I believe that Pontius Pilate and people in our world today want to dismiss absolute truth is because if absolute truth exists, then we have no choice but to surrender to it, to submit to it, and to obey it. But we don't want to. And because we don't want to, because we don't want to do the things that Jesus says to do, because we don't want to surrender our lives to him, we deny that he is truth. I'll put it this way. In our world, we have what are called the laws of physics. And the laws of physics, kind of put, to put simply, are, are truths that we must obey in order to, to live and thrive and move forward in this world. One easy example is gravity. Because gravity is absolutely true, you must obey it. No one stands on the edge of a skyscraper and says, well, your truth might be gravity, but my truth is that I could fly over to this building, right? I mean, they could do that, I guess, but they wouldn't last very long. Friends, just like the truth of gravity demands compliance, obedience, and adherence, so does Jesus. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then, then you can choose to do your own thing and live your own way, but you will, in a sense, be tossing your soul off the edge of a skyscraper. You see, in our world, two ways of thinking about God and truth are increasingly popular. One is often referred to as scientific naturalism, or, or in short, there is no God. This view says... The only thing that's important, the only thing that we can really know is what you can taste, touch, hear, smell, detect, or measure. This view offers us scientific facts, but no truth, no purpose for your life, no morality, no right and wrong, no sense of identity or a larger vision for what it means to be a human being. In this view, you are cells, you are chemicals, you are atoms, you are here today, gone tomorrow, and there is no larger meaning for your life. That's the first view. It's kind of a depressing one. But a lot of people hold to it. Here's the second view. This one is more and more popular, especially in a culture like ours, a culture like Portland. This view essentially doesn't say there is no God. This, this view says we're all God. God is everything and everywhere, and the way you find truth is by getting in touch with yourself and knowing yourself, understanding your wants and your needs and your desires. This view says there, are, there may not be a larger purpose for your life, but you can create one for yourself. Now, you'll notice that while each of these views may on the surface seem very different, where they come together is in the fact that each allows you to create your own morality. Your own belief about life's purpose and about what is right and wrong and what really matters. You see, with either one of these views, I can sleep with whoever I want. I can spend my money however I choose because if I've convinced myself that it's the right thing for me, Who's to tell me that it's wrong? 
But the second that you say, the second that you admit or believe that there is an absolute truth outside of you, now you have to surrender. Now you have to obey. This is why people love the first two views. There is no God. I can do whatever I want. I'm God. I can do whatever I want. This is great, at least for a little while. But if you're a Christian, it even gets worse. If you're a Christian, or better, not only is there absolute truth out there that demands obedience, it's an absolute truth that's personal. Jesus is the truth. It's a person who's truth. You see, some religions, some belief systems do have external truths to obey, but they're not personal. And so you relate to them in an impersonal way. Let me give you an example. How do you relate to chairs, cars, iPads? How do you relate to impersonal objects? You use them. You use them to make your life better. But not people, right? I mean, certainly there are people in our world who use others. But we would all say, we'd all agree that we don't want to just use people. In fact, the more that you love and value and respect somebody, the more you seek out that person's desires and you try to please them. You don't just use them. It's called a relationship. Well, now, if that's the case, think about an eternal, infinitely powerful, loving, kind God. If that being were true, you wouldn't just use him, you'd want to honor him and respect him and and please him and obey him. You see, this this is one of the reasons I believe Eastern and New Age religions are becoming so popular in self improvement America. The more we get focused on ourselves, the more popularity for these religions grows because in Eastern and New Age religions, they say that God is not a person. All sorts of different religions under those two categories. But here's where they agree. God is not a person. God is a power. God doesn't have a personality. He doesn't talk to you. He's a force. And the force is something that you use to deal with Darth Vader, right? The force is something you use to make your life better, to solve your problems, and to push you forward, and to help you advance in this world. But the force is not a father who will sit you down and say to you, you need to start treating your wife better. Or this is how I'd like for you to use your money moving forward. Or or, here is how I designed you to behave sexually, or love your enemies, or instead of worry, have faith. You see, because God is is not only truth, but personal truth, he demands obedience from us. And this leads to the final question. What will the result be? What will the result be? What is truth? What does truth demand? And what will the result of obedience to the truth be? Friends, Jesus tells us this in John 8. He says, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you obey truth, Jesus says you will experience freedom. Freedom. I'll say it like Braveheart. Freedom! (laughs) Think with me for a moment. Just, Just, 
And I, I know this is a heady sermon, so dial in with me here for a second. Think with me for a moment about a sailboat. There are some truths that govern the life and existence and function of a sailboat, aren't there? I'll give you a couple examples. Like if you put the sails up at just the right angles with just the right tension, they will catch the wind and the boat will be propelled forward through the water. And friends, when that happens, this is what you might call freedom for the sailboat. This is what you might call zoe or, or, or abundant life for that sailboat. It's obeying the truth so that it can be and do what it was designed to be and do. Friends, obedience to Jesus, to the truth of Jesus, works that exact same way in your life. He designed you to know him and follow him and make him Lord of your life. He designed you to think and act and live in a certain way. And when you obey those truths, you will begin to sail through life the way Jesus designed you to, and you will experience freedom. But you know what's interesting? Another thing that Jesus says about freedom in John chapter 8, he says later in the same discussion, if the Son sets you free, he's talking about himself, if the Son, if I set you free, you will be free indeed. He said you'll actually experience freedom. In other words, he's, he's getting at the fact that there's his real freedom, but there's also a kind of a false or a fake or a pseudo freedom on offer in our world See, here's what the world says. You will be free when you can be whoever you want to be and do whatever you want to do. That's America in a slogan. You will be free whenever you can be whoever you want to be and do whatever you want to do. That's there is no God freedom or we're all God freedom. But Jesus says you are really free when you surrender who you are and what you do to him. Back to the sailboat one more time. What if that same sailboat said one day, you know what? I'm tired of all these rules. I'm tired. I don't like people telling me who to be and what to do. I'm sick of it. And so I'm going to start sailing the way I want to. In fact, I'm going to start sailing with my sails down and with my anchor in the water. Will that produce freedom, life, blessing, significance for that sailboat? Or what if the sailboat said, you know, this water's all right, but I want land. In fact, I'm sick of sailing around these waters. I'm going to sail right up on shore. In fact, I want to go down Main Street Will that decision produce freedom, life, blessing for that sailboat? Friends, you see, Christian freedom, the freedom God offers us, says you were made for God and by God and you will live and function best when you trust him and surrender to him and obey the truth that is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, let me ask you today, Maybe this is kind of where the entire sermon lands. Is there a place in your life where you're acting like a rebellious sailboat? 
Is there a place in your life where you're acting like a rebellious sailboat, where you have decided to be your own God and make your own rules and live your own way? Is there a place in life where you're trying to operate outside the truth that is Jesus? Outside of his authority, outside of his lordship. You see, one of the reasons that we gather together weekly, maybe the primary reason, is to confess the places where we aren't obeying the truth of God like we should. Friends, we are a community of confession. Or a community of people that are committed to following Jesus together in this world. And then we gather to say, and I'm failing in some places. This is just a weekly chance for us to be really authentic and say, God, here's a place in my life where I've gone my own way, but I, I want to come back. I need to come back. I want the way and the truth and the life that you offer me. And friends, the primary way that we do this is through this meal. It's this meal we share together. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's where we remember God's grace for the places that we've gone our own way. It's also a meal where we remember God's power on offer to us to come back and walk again in his truth. You see, sometimes I go my own way and I can't even find my way back. And God says, not only do I have grace for that, I have the power and strength that you need to get back on track. So come to me. So this morning, friends, as we come to the table to get our elements, spend a minute and consider and talk to God about where your life, where the life that he's calling you to live in obedience and his truth and his freedom has maybe gotten off track. Where you've either decided like, there is no God, I don't need to listen to him, or I'll just be my own God and I'll decide for myself because I'm sure I know better than the creator of the universe who made me and designed me and loved me. Where are you off track today? Where are you living outside of the truth that is Jesus? Where have you traded generic freedom or traded the obedience of Christ for generic freedom? Where have you traded that? Where have you traded the real freedom that God gives by living under his rule and authority so that you could do your own thing? Don't you understand, friends, that that will land you on Main Street with no wheels to drive on? Spend some time today. And, and for some of you, something's coming to mind. You already know right now as I speak, here's where I'm doing my own thing. Here's where I'm off track. Here's where I'm not living in obedience to the Lord. You already know it. But for some of you, you don't know. And maybe this is a time just to ask, God, is there a place in my life that you need to show me, that you need to reveal to me? Is there something that you're calling me away from or calling me into? But spend a few authentic moments with God and just let his spirit speak to you. Maybe for some of you, the words from God today will just be, well done. You're doing it. Keep going. Take heart. Be encouraged. But let the spirit of the Lord speak to you today about where Jesus is Lord and maybe where he isn't Lord in your life. And then when you're ready, come to the tables. Get your elements. We're going to receive them together in just a moment. So whenever you're ready, the tables are open for you.